welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm producer Brian Dalek, back again this week as your host. In today's show, Shoes and Gear editor Jeff Dengate joins me to answer all of your running shoe questions. Then, in the kick, the man behind the mullet at the NCAA Track and Field Championships, plus a half-marathon wedding mashup that is really hard to believe. But first, Tish Hamilton's interview with Olympic marathoner Kara Goucher. They covered so much in this conversation, from dealing with the worst injury she's ever suffered to the highs and still very emotional lows of her career, to learning how to focus on what's really important and what it's like to be in love with running. Running, um, because I think it's so personal and because I really have just put myself out there and been and allowed myself to be vulnerable with it, um, with the dreams that I've had, the hopes that I've had, and the goals that I've had, it, it can cut me like nothing else in my life. I mean, I wouldn't, I would never like keep a normal friend that could, that would cut me the way that running does. I would be like, wow, you're a really bad person and we're breaking up. It's an insightful, honest conversation from one of the most familiar and popular names in our sport. Thanks for joining us. Kara Goucher has been on the cover of Runner's World a lot. That's because she's not only had a long, decorated running career, but she's a vocal advocate for the sport who's appealed to her fans, in part because she's not afraid to appear vulnerable and emotional when she's struggled as an athlete. Kara's many accomplishments include a bronze in the 10,000 meters at the 2007 World Championships, and then that same year, she beat Paula Radcliffe at the Great North Run, that's a half marathon in England. In fact, her time of 66.57 in that race is the fastest half marathon run by an American woman. In 2008, she qualified for the Olympic Games, her first in both the 5,000 and 10,000 meters. And then later that year, she made her marathon debut in New York City, placing third in 225.53. That was the fastest first marathon by an American woman. She placed third at her next 26.2 as well, the 2009 Boston Marathon. And it's a finish that, as you'll hear in her interview, still stings a little bit. She bounced back, however, and ran her personal best in 2011 when she ran 224.52 in Boston. And then she made her second Olympics in 2012 after finishing third in the Olympic marathon trials. And then she took 11th in the London Games in the marathon. In between all of that, she switched coaches, had a son, joined the Wazelle racing team, and dealt with injuries. And in 2014, she started her podium retreats, a weekend of running and wellness for women. And it's a retreat that Tish Hamilton was lucky enough to attend. All right, so Kara, I would like to know uh, when and how did you start running? Um, I first ran when I was six years old. My grandpa took me to a one-mile race um, near my home in Duluth, Minnesota, and that's the first time I ever ran. Then I would occasionally run um, just little local road races. I would run the Mother's Day run in my hometown and things like that. And then when I was in seventh grade, I wanted to win this award, and you had to have academics, um, athletics, and the arts. And so I had the right GPA and I was in the band, so that counted for the arts, but I didn't have anything for athletics. So I originally thought I would play volleyball and they had tryouts and that did not go well for me. And so I joined cross country where everyone got to be on and that's how I started organized running. And how did those first cross country runs go for you? Um... I was, you know, I was talented, but I didn't know anything about pacing, anything like that. Um, I just kind of like ran as hard as I could and then would die in the later stages of a race. So it it took some getting used to, but I definitely loved it right away. I come from a really athletic family and, you know, I spent my winter breaks at ski camps and tennis camps in the summer and always playing softball, soccer, all sorts of stuff. But running was the first thing I did that was that was natural to me that I didn't have to think while I was doing it. So I definitely fell in love with it right away, even though I didn't learn pacing myself for a while. It sounds like a classic kid thing to go out as hard as possible. 
Oh, yeah. I'd be like, let's see how big of a lead I can get. And then now I'm walking. Hopefully no one will catch me. <laughs> Very difficult. Okay. And so flash forward many years. And uh, where is your running today? And I mean specifically today. I know you went for a run. Today I just have two recovery runs. Um, I had a long run yesterday and then a shakeout run last night. And today um, is just two super easy recovery runs. I ran um, eight miles this morning. I'll run four miles tonight. Oh my, (laughs) that's a lot of recovery. (laughs) Yeah, but I need it. Um, It's kind of funny, like the more I run, the better I feel. And I I think maybe it's because I have aged a little bit. And it's kind of like that use it or lose it. Um, When I start getting into doubles, I actually feel better the next day. And so I don't necessarily like when I have to head out when I'm tired already, like especially the double yesterday after a long run was tough, but it made today's run a lot better. And how long was your long run? Um, It was just 16. I've been working my way back up. And yeah, yesterday was 16. Okay. And we just have to pause and note that the only person in the world who would say just 16 is a marathoner. (laughs) True. But yeah, I I am coming back from probably the most difficult injury of my career. Not probably, the most difficult injury of my career. Tell us, can you tell us what that is? Yeah, I had a knee injury that required two surgeries. um, But I think the worst part was just that I had a lot of bone damage. And so I had to take five months of no running, which is the longest break I've ever taken since I began organized running when I was 12. So it was just a super long break, which mentally was exhausting for me. And it just was really hard. And then um, I swam a lot and I cross trained as much as I could. So I think aerobically I stayed relatively fit, but I really fell out of running shape. Um, You know, my muscles weren't allowed to run or do anything weight bearing for five months. So when I came back, it's just, it's been a, it's been hard. Um, And the first two months were, I was so looking forward to running and then I finally got to run and and it sucked. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) it's finally starting to come around now. I'm starting to feel more and more like myself. So you've been successful on a lot of international stages. Um, So tell us about one of your highest highs. Like what's one of your favorite running moments? I think um, my two highest moments are probably, you know, winning my first half marathon in 66-57 and beating Paula, who went on to win New York uh, five weeks later. And that's Paula Radcliffe that you Paula, beat. Yeah, Paula Radcliffe. Yeah, the world record holder. Pretty cool. Um, it was a very cool moment. It was very surreal. And as I was running the race, I couldn't believe that I had pulled away from her. And I remember thinking, oh, God, I'm so stupid. Like, I'm just going to be that American and she's going to come ripping by me and then when I finished and turned around and didn't see her, I just couldn't believe it. Um, and also that summer when I won the bronze medal at the World Championships, that was just such a huge um, game changer for me and the way I looked at myself and the way that other people looked at me and respected me. And so, you know, I, I couldn't believe that it happened. You know, I'm running and I'm in fourth place and we have 200 meters to go. And I just found the willpower to, to attempt to kick by Joe, Joe Pavey and I even remember thinking to myself, I'm dying, um, but I'm going to go buy her and make it look like I feel awesome and just sell it, like act like I feel awesome and hopefully it'll crush her willpower. And somehow it worked, you know, and I couldn't believe it. I was like the, I was like, I don't know, maybe 20th on paper and I walked away with bronze medal. So those two races really opened my eyes up to what was possible and um, made me feel like. You know, I had struggled so much to that point. My career has unfortunately been riddled with a lot of injury. And at that point, it really was made me feel like, yeah, all this was worth it. You know, not going back to the graduate school, um, cross training and watching Oprah Winfrey for hours on end. it, It was all worth it. Act like you're awesome is something that you can talk yourself into also, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Okay, so now, of course, the opposite of the runner's high is the runner's low. Um, and, and you just mentioned injuries. Um, can you tell us one of the, the lowest moments you've had uh, as a runner and, and how you dealt with that? Probably the lowest. Um, I mean, I've been injured a lot and questioned myself a lot and questioned my self-worth as an athlete a lot. But honestly, the hardest thing I had to get over was um, the Boston Marathon in 2009 it still makes me emotional. I really thought I could do it. I really thought I could win. And I made some tactical errors in the race and, and wound up a third. And that's the first time I really felt um, like I had let 
thousands and thousands of people down, not just myself and my coach, but just so many people in my shoe company. And um, that was really hard for me to get over. I I ended up having to go um, to therapy actually to get over that. And it still stings. You're hard on yourself, my dear. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you're having a low moment, um, how, how do you keep the faith? Um, you know, running really is the best friend I've ever had. It's the joy of it's been sucked from me at times when it became, when it has become too professional, but running really has helped me get through a lot of that stuff. Just being in my own head, in my own space, um, realizing that the sun does come up, surrounding myself by family. Pretty much after every big, big race I run, I plan a trip to visit my family because whether it goes good or bad, I know that they're going to remind me that my life is more than a race result. So just surrounding myself with um, friends and family and you know, trying to reflect on all the good that I've done, even though maybe I didn't get the result that I wanted. That's just a really awesome idea, actually. I love that, planning to be surrounded by love. So you recently wrote, nothing in my life has ever broken my heart the way running has. And what does that mean to you? Running, um, because I think it's so personal and because I really have just put myself out there and been and allowed myself to be vulnerable with it, um, with the dreams that I've had, the hopes that I've had and the goals that I've had, it, it can cut me like nothing else in my life. I mean, I wouldn't, I would never like keep a normal friend that could, that would cut me the way that running does. I would be like, wow, you're a really bad person and we're breaking up. Um, and so it's just such an interesting relationship because it just has caused me so much pain and anguish. And yet it's the greatest friend I've ever had and I can't live without it. And when I'm injured, I just feel like I don't even know who I am. I don't even know how to function. And so, yeah, it's just was like kind of like a love letter to running, but um, but a reminder like and, and I think it was relatable to a lot of people because we all have things that we don't achieve or we get injured or, you know, it running can hurt us. Um, but yet it's so beautiful and we all need it. Right, because then what you did go on to say, and yet I cannot breathe without you. Yeah, I mean, I love running so much. It really, aside from my family, is the greatest gift of my life. And like I said, it, it has hurt me like not, like no one else. Um, and But it has given me everything without running. Like my life would have taken such a different path. And I don't know how I would deal with um, just normal stress and anxiety and and my relationships running has made everything in my life better so it's like a you know but it can hurt <laughs> it can hurt bad um do you think that you would uh continue running if you were not you know uh, um a world-class runner definitely um i have faced that the last couple of years i'm getting older and the body hasn't held up how meds has um or Legat or someone of that caliber. And so I have my moments where I think about letting the racing aspect go, but not running. I mean, I will always run and I love running twice a day and I love being out there. I love the days where I meet up with my friends. I really enjoy, but I also enjoy the time alone on my feet, um, thinking, planning what's coming up or just being you know, kind of thoughtless, just numb in my brain. So I, I mean, I'm your classic addicted to running person. Um, <laughs> and I don't see that changing just because I'm not competing. So, um, so you're known as a runner who is, is you're pretty open about dealing with emotions, you know, about running and on the run. And, and I, I would imagine that that is both a good thing, you know, because you acknowledge and you open it, but it's also can be a challenge. Is that right? Yeah. I used to try to keep all of my emotions in check and, um, not really share how I was feeling, always act really professional. Um, but I just, I couldn't do it. You know, I would get so emotional. I'd be like, don't cry, don't cry till you get to the tent. And finally I just like, was like, I, you know, I don't care. This is who I am. I wear my heart on my sleeve and in good times and bad. Um, and so on the one hand, I think it's been good because I don't have to try to pretend that I'm something that I'm not anymore. And I haven't for, you know, a good chunk of years now. I don't pretend to be anything that I'm not. 
but um, it doesn't come without criticism and um, you know I let a lot of people in and so it makes me a little bit more vulnerable and and I am really bad at hiding when I'm upset or and so like I said maybe I've said things that have offended other people and and they let me know I never the funny thing is I'm really really shy um, as a normal person and so it's crazy to me that my words will just like take off and be on all these websites or you know be be printed in places because I'm so shy in my normal life Um, so it's weird that my voice it's been something to get used to that my voice has meaning and that people um, listen to it because yeah it's just weird okay so you say you're shy and yet and yet you do a women's running retreat called the podium retreat which I was lucky enough to go on a few years ago and it was so much fun and oh, you're like you're right there in the thick of it for the whole weekend with a pretty big group of women. And one of the highlights and the hallmarks, I think, of your retreat that distinguishes it from some other running retreats is sort of a focus on the emotions of running. So I'm curious about how did you decide to include that? Yeah, when I decided to do the retreat, you know, running has just given me so much. And what I felt like I wanted to do was take a group of women that maybe have nothing in common except for running and share about what it means to us, what it's done for us and build each other up and help each other to be able to face different things in our life that are challenges. And, you know, like really one of my main goals was for someone to leave and have like a new friend for life. Um, the retreat is the one of the best things I've done in my life and one of the things I'm most proud of and um, it continues to blow me away every year that people come and share and are really allow themselves to be vulnerable and to make new friends and it's a place of no judgment and how how does that square with being competitive yeah I mean it's funny because I am very competitive when I'm on the line and I want what I want but I you know I I feel like I I have I haven't lost that competitive edge, but I feel like the purpose of my running has totally changed. I used to think it was that I needed to set American records and I needed to win medals and I needed to deliver these major marathon championship wins. Um, and now I really feel like the purpose of my running is that it I bring people together and I help people um, feel safe and listened to and heard. And so it's funny when I'm when I'm in race mode and I'm in a hard training block, you know, I'm hardcore still, but I actually enjoy this part of my career more because this is why I fell in love with running. I didn't fall in love with running because I was good. I fell in love with the way it made me feel and how I felt like, you know, I finally found this activity that was natural to me and it was mine and I felt better after I did it, just a practice session. So it feels like this point of my career is closer to why I fell in love with running in the first place. A few years ago, you left Nike to go with Wazell, which is a women's only apparel company. Uh, and can you tell us about how the experience is different? Yeah, it's very different. When I left Nike, um, my contract was up as contracts are. And for the first time, I decided to shop around. Um, and I fell in love with Wazelle. I went there and it just felt like a really different feel. It wasn't it wasn't results driven. It was community building driven. And um, just it was all about relationships and encouraging others. And it felt like a really cool, safe place that was also exciting. Like they wanted to shake things up and they wanted to get more people involved. But it was safe because it wasn't about how fast you were running. Um, and so my my relationship there, it's been great. And it's it's changed over the years. I'll have a care collection coming out this fall. So I've gotten to do some design. Um, but it is really just about spreading the joy and the love of running and, and the suffering of running. And, you know, I have zero in my contract with Wazelle or Skechers about performance. Um, there's no requirements on races. There's no you know, ranking I have to achieve. So it's been a completely different experience because with my former contract, um, I got paid great and they were very good to me, but I had 
a lot of requirements and now I don't have any. And so it's been really different. It's just about um, sharing my experience. Everybody, they just really want me to share what I'm going through. And that comes pretty easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you have a son, Colt, and he's now six. Is he in first grade? He's in kindergarten. Kindergarten. So had the, having a kid in school, a school-aged child, I don't know if he's in full-day kindergarten or half-day, but it definitely changes things, I think, don't you? Oh, yeah. He's in half-day still. Um, he goes full-day Tuesday, Thursday, because those are typically my harder days, and then he has half-day Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, but I, it, it is a game-changer already, just knowing that every day I'm going to have a chunk of time where he's not here. And... But it's also a little bit sad. I'm a little bit like sad that first grade is coming because I enjoy my mornings with Colt. I run in the morning and then we hang out and then I take him to school and then I usually um, get some work done around the house or go for another run and then pick him up. And so I enjoy that time with him and I feel like I've been able to have a really special relationship with him because I've been able to chase my own goals but still have a lot of quality time with him. Um, But I know that my life will be a lot easier next year when he's gone all day. Um, does he does he ever run a little bit with you? Um, Colt does not run with me very often. He actually did run with me Saturday. He I was going out for an easy run, and he said, I'll go with you. And I thought, oh, great. Um, <laughs> but so we, we went about a quarter mile down the road, and then he said he wanted to go home. So then I ran him back home. So that was about a half mile. He's pretty funny. He will tell you he's faster than his mom and dad. He's better than them. But... He, at this point, doesn't want to be a runner. He's very into gymnastics. Um, He's really into climbing. He's about to play flag football, which I tried to fight, but um, he really wanted to do it. And I think, you know, he'll have a blast. Um, So it's funny because he's the same age that I ran my first race basically now. Um, And right, I think I could get him to go do like a race with kids. But as far as like going out and training, he's not. He has no interest in that. Yeah, and he's way too young. But, you know, a quarter mile <laughs> yeah. down the road and back sounds exactly perfect. Yeah, he was, like, super excited. He came back, and then he was like, Dad, I need some water. Like, he was super <laughs> excited about it. I got to take a, I got to go lie down now. That was a half mile. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was like, well, I'll be back in nine more miles. So, <laughs> bye. <laughs> Um, I see that you are you and Adam are uh, hosting twelve monthly challenges, where each month has a different fitness goal. And do you set up monthly goals for yourself? You know, right now I've just been trying to not push anything. Um, I have the tendency to overdo it. Um, if my coaches say, "Oh, do twelve to sixteen quarters," all I hear is sixteen quarters. I don't hear the twelve part. So. Right now, I'm not really trying to set any benchmarks or any goals except for just to make small small progression week by week and see where it happens because, yeah, I'm trying to be very conservative. I'm trying to do what I would tell other people to do right now, be conservative. Maybe you should make your goal to be able to hear the 12 part of 12 to 16. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That would be a good goal, but I don't know that I'll ever be able to hear that 12 part. (laughs) As we get older, you know, inevitably, at some point, all of us are going to slow down. When this does happen to you, how will you define success? That's a great question. I think, you know, my coaches have already asked me if I would want to go after American Records as a master. And I don't know yet. Um, Right now, I still want to be named to teams and I still want to compete on that upper echelon. But I know that you can't do it forever. I know that you know, I'm 38, I'll be 39 this year. You you can't fight Mother Nature. I know that. Um, I just don't know how I'll feel if I'm going for a master's record, but I'm still fighting for top eight in a major. That may still feel really fun for me. If I'm going for a master's title, but I'm 20th overall, I'm not. I just don't know if that will feel fun for me. So I'll have to see as I go. There are other things that I would like to explore. I would like to explore more natural running and maybe do some ultra running. And so I kind of am in this whatever motivates me in the moment. That's what I'm going to go for a bit. And right now, wearing the U.S. uniform one more time is really motivating to me. And so the marathon still seems motivating to me. Right. Right. So um, do you have any running role models? Um, I, when I was growing up, um, 
I always knew who Susie Favor Hamilton was. Um, she, I grew up in Minnesota and she grew up in Wisconsin and she had a great career at Wisconsin and then, of course, beyond. So I really looked up to her a lot. And then also Lynn Jennings. I really, really looked up to her. I remember when she won World Cross in Boston and um, I stole my sister's Sports Illustrated so I could have the photo of her from there. But I really have found a lot of joy and a lot of motivation and inspiration just from everyday runners because why I think because it it just makes me I can, I feel like I can relate to them more their love for it the way that they care, they want to do it so badly that they fit it into their real lives with kids and jobs and real life stress um you know before I had Colt my entire life was built around running and I loved it it was awesome but that's not relatable to a lot of other people you know I would wake up at 8:30 and I would have breakfast head over to to Nike, meet Alberto for a workout at 1030, go get a massage, go home, take a nap. My alarm would go off again at five. I'd get up, go for another little run, have dinner, watch a movie. I mean, everything was built around running and it was, I was training super, super hard. So I had to do that. But, you know, after I had Colt, my life kind of got turned upside down. It's not that easy when you have someone who's dependent on you. And so it obviously still can be done, but it's just different. And then when I see people who have three children, four children, they're working jobs, they get up at five o'clock on a Saturday to go get their long run in and their long run, maybe it takes them three hours to run what would take me an hour or something. And so that type of dedication, that love for it is really relatable to me in a way um, that I just, yeah, I just connect to that and I appreciate that so much. Yeah, it's, it is. It's really hard. It's hard to get it yeah, all in. It's, it's really hard. And I, you know, sometimes I think I don't I don't know if I could do it if I had a normal job and I had three children and I had to get up to do a three hour run by myself in the dark. I honestly don't know if I could do that. So I find that really inspiring. It makes me want to do justice to the to the gifts that I've been given and the life I've been given because there's a lot of people out there sacrificing just as much as I am who don't have it as easy as I have it. So when you you mentioned having an injury, you know, for five months, and that was the hardest thing you had dealt with, um, not running for five months, what are some of the mental strategies to getting through that? You know, I do think that trying to reframe it in your mind, not as like, a, oh, I'm missing out and I can't do this, but look at all these other things I can do. For instance, I was able to go to Minnesota for the summer for the first time in a decade and spend a long period of time there. Colt got to be with his cousins. He's been to Minnesota, but like really only in the winter. So he was like, what? We can swim in the lake? You know, it was like mind blowing to him. So um, enjoying time with them, you know, getting to do other things like I'm okay to go walk down Pearl Street for two hours because I'm not stressed out about tiring out my legs for my workout tomorrow. So, you know, just normal everyday things that um, I have these things where I always go, well, when I'm not running, I'm going to do this. When I'm not running, I'm going to do that. And so I got to do a lot of those things. I got to hike the Colorado Trail and just do some really cool stuff that I've always wanted to do. And so I tried to focus on that. Um, Like, hey, I get to do this. I get to hang out at the pool. I get to go travel here. I get to go do this thing for Skechers or Wazelle and it's not stressful. It's only fun because I'm not stressed about training. And that worked for a while. Um, But I do think at the three month mark where I thought that I was going to get to start running and I had an MRI and I found out I had to wait another eight weeks that, you know, that was, that's hard. I had it. Yeah, it was a hard, it was hard. Like we went to the store and I told Colt, pick out whatever candy you want. And he was like, really? (laughs) And we got home and I was opening a bottle of wine and Colt's eating candy. And Adam's like, what happened? (laughs) And I'm like, I got my MRI results back, you know? Um, and so I, I was like kind of a sourpuss for a couple days, but then I pulled out of it. Like, what am I going to do? Like if I could never run again, what would I just shrivel up and die no I'd have to find a way to deal with it so that's when I really started becoming really focused on swimming and um, trying to be more dedicated to that and be better and and have that time that two hours a day where I'm like working hard so that the rest of the day I didn't feel guilty about enjoying other things in my life right and the trick isn't it the trick is to to appreciate it when when you can when you can have time to go swim in the lake and hike on a trail and and not feel sorry for yourself that you're not running. Yeah, exactly. There were so many things I did this summer that I haven't done in years. And 
it was a blessing, you know, like I got to spend a lot of good time with my grandparents who are 91 and 92 and um, I just got to do things that I never could normally do. And so th- those were blessings, you know, I was got to be with my, uh, we had, had a horrible storm in Minnesota and a tree fell on my mom's house and came crashing through the roof. It was super scary and stressful, but I got to be there and I got to help, um, help my mom organize, help her get cleaned up. And those are things that normally I would be at home like, oh, I wish I could help, but I can't. I just have to train. And so it really was in a weird way, a blessing. Colt loved it. Colt was like, this is the best summer ever. Mm -hmm. Mommy's always here. Whatever I want to do. She's like, okay. So, and that was special, right? He was about to start elementary school. And so there was so much good that came from it. It just was like this little dark cloud over my heart because I didn't feel like myself because I couldn't get out and just run every day. Right. Tricky balance. Yeah. So Meb, Meb Kofleski, we've talked about him a couple of times, and he is a, a real role model for everybody who's trying to, to run as they age. I hate to call him old. What is he? He's 40 or maybe 41. Um, but I, I was wondering if um, – have you learned any lessons from him? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, after I made the Olympic team in 2012, I went and ran the New York City Half Marathon and um, he was there. He had also made the Olympic team. Obviously, he won the trials in Houston. And, you know, I got third and I don't know what place he got, like ninth, 10th, 11th, something like that. And I remember at the time he said, you don't need to be pressing so hard. You're in great shape. Like, just calm down, essentially. <laughs> and um, I've gotten to know him better over the past few years because now we both run for Skechers Performance. And he does not kill himself all the time. He knows his body. He knows what he needs. I remember in 2014, I was running the New York City Marathon and I saw him. We did a commercial shoot together and it was like six weeks out from the marathon. And I was like full bore training so hard. And then I was asking him how his training was going. He was like, oh, like kind of like, you know, I've been training a little bit. I mean, we're still six weeks out. And I was like, what? We're only six weeks out. So one thing I've really learned from him is at this age, you have all those miles in your legs and it's not like it just goes away. And he's kind of taught me to just calm down a little bit. So he's just kind of made me realize I don't have to have these perfect 15 week buildups. Um, granted, everybody loves to have one. I, I was fortunate enough to have one for the trials, but in general, at this age, all that time we've spent on our feet is still there and it comes back quickly. And maybe we can't get sharp as easily as we did before, but the strength comes back pretty, pretty quickly. Right. That's such a smart lesson. And and yet it's so hard to hear. It is so hard, right? Because you know what other people are doing. You read other people's training and they're doing over distance runs and they're putting in 130 mile weeks and you think, oh man, I need to do that. But um, you know, then it's like, well, should I do that and then get injured or should I run 115 or a hundred or even a hundred and put together six solid weeks? I think, you know, the latter is obviously more important, but it is tough. Like, especially in this day and age when people share a lot of their training and you think, oh my God, like <laughs> I'm not right. doing anything near that. And that did happen a little bit before the trials. I, I was so excited about how my training went. And then, Um, I would read some of another athlete's workouts and I'd be like, oh my gosh, like she's just going to destroy me. And then I, I beat her by quite a bit. So it's, you just have to really remain focused on yourself and what you're doing. Right. Right. So I think the lesson there is don't look at social media before you race. Yeah, exactly. It's so hard not to, but yeah, really it, all it does is just mess with your head. Psych you out. Yeah, Totally. That was Tish Hamilton speaking with Olympic marathoner Kara Goucher. Coming up, shoes and gear editor Jeff Dengate decodes stuff like, does drop really matter? Alrighty, now it's time for our very first shoe FAQ. So we asked listeners a couple months ago to send in their pressing running shoe questions. And honestly, we got slammed with queries. We even got a few voice memos sent in. So to answer the questions, I went into the studio with our expert, shoes and gear editor, Jeff Dengate. (music) 
So let's jump right in to the first question. It actually comes from Rebecca via a voice memo. And she has a good question. I'm sure you get this a lot. I probably asked this to you when I was starting to ramp up my training a lot. So let's listen to this one. Hey, Jeff. My question is about racing flats and wondering if I should try them out. I've always just run my race in whatever shoes I've been training in, but I'm wondering if I should take it to the next level. And if you think so, what do you recommend in terms of best practices, how to go about shopping for them and breaking them in and using them when it comes to race day? If you could help me out, that would be great. Thanks. Okay, Jeff, so the transition to racing flats and really regarding to her marathons, but this could be kind of to any distance if you're trying to like pick up speed, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the big things is you want a lighter shoe to go faster, right? Um, there's some studies that say roughly around every three and a half ounces is going to equate to 1% performance benefit, which is a pretty big deal if you're really gunning for the clock. Um, so by wearing racing flats, you're going to be dropping easily that over your daily trainer. The trade-off is on really long races, your legs could get beat up. Um, so for a lot of people, depending on what your goals are, I'll say stick with your training shoe through a marathon, for example. You're going to want the benefit of that extra little bit of cushioning, especially late in the race. But whenever you're turning on the speed for tempo runs, track workouts, things like that, you can jump into a lighter shoe. You're going to feel faster. You're going to go a little faster. And I would say shoes that are maybe not quite racing flats, but our lightweight performance shoes like the New Balance Fresh Foam Zante or the Saucony Kinvara, and tried and true fast shoes. They're still lightweight, but they're going to be training shoes. And then if you know those are, she's finding success with those, she could buy an even lighter pair of racing flats, um, which there's just the slightest bit of protection between you and the road and those things. They're just geared to go fast on race day. Okay, great. So our next question is a Twitter question. It comes from at Lane M underscore Johnson. Lane asks, if you have a properly cushioned shoe, how much does running surface matter in terms of shock to your knees? It's a, a kind of technical question here. I know in our shoe reviews, we ask the question, what percentage do you spend on the road or do you spend on a treadmill or the track or trail or grass even? Yeah, I mean, running shoes offer a lot of cushioning, but let's be honest, these man-made surfaces like pavement, asphalt, and concrete are really, really hard. Um, Orders of magnitude harder than dirt and grass. So, you know, if you've ever had a running coach at all, they always will tell you run on the softest surfaces possible. You're going to be slower on dirt, but it's going to save your body. It's just, there's no doubt about it, regardless of what shoe you're going to wear. So getting on soft surfaces is key. As far as like running on concrete versus asphalt, um, you know, I see people running out on the road because they don't want to run on a sidewalk because they believe concrete's that much harder. The difference between those two is pretty negligible, you know, when you think about the safety that a sidewalk offers you rather than getting hit by a car out in the road. So I would say stick to the soft surfaces, um, you know, if you can, uh, if you must run on uh, really hard roads and uh, concrete and you, you're feeling it, go for a softer shoe. So you're saying my 18 miles on a trail this weekend was probably better than 18 miles I did a couple weeks ago on the road. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, you know, the one thing is... I felt a little less beat up this weekend, honestly. Yeah, there's one thing that you have to be aware of, though. If you say training for a marathon that's going to be flat and on concrete, you, you better prepare yourself. Because if you spend all your miles training on treadmills or soft ground, and then you hit that hard road on race day, you're going to pay the price. So you have to know what your surfaces are going to be for race days as well, if that's what you're training on. Okay, let's get to another tweet. This one is from Megan Powers. She has an interesting question. Um, she says, I'm curious why the cushioning and flexibility stats for the male and female model of the same shoe are often significantly different. Um, I actually noticed that um, we're doing a new thing on Instagram on Runner's World um, called Tuesday Tuesday, and so we're putting it together, and I noticed that the Brooks Ravenna 8, uh, Best Buy in Our Spring Shoe Guide, um, there were big differences in it, 10.8 ounces in weight versus nine ounces in the men versus women's respectively. And there was also a two millimeter drop difference between the shoes. So does that mean anything? It, it does, but doesn't. Um, you know, a lot of what we see is there can be variation between samples. Um, there can be variations between a men's shoe now and later down the road. You know, production variances are in there. So 
Um, while you may see small fluctuations in the numbers that we report versus maybe what a manufacturer would suggest, um, they're usually somewhere close, somewhere in line. A millimeter or two isn't that big a deal, really. Um, the one thing with women's shoes versus men's shoes, and women's shoes are just smaller. So you're going to have sometimes a little steeper angle if you keep in the um, the stack height's the same. So your heel thickness and your forefoot thickness are the same. They're just a little bit closer together. That's going to increase that angle, um, which is that that drop. But what we're doing is measuring where the the pressure is greatest under your heel and the ball of your foot according to uh, an international standard that was established for those pressure sent testing locations. And that's where we're measuring the heel height and the forefoot height as well. Um, makes sense. And in the lab, we're just measuring everything that sits below your foot as it comes to us from the manufacturer. So that includes the rubber, the layers of glue, the midsole foam, the sock liner, everything that would be below your foot. And we're just reporting it as we see the samples come to us. From our shoe lab. From the shoe lab out in Portland. So a lot of talk about dropping that. We'll get to that in a question or two, but we have one more. It's another voice memo. This one is from Scott Crawford. Hey, Brian, this is Scott Crawford in Birmingham, Alabama. My question is regarding recovery sandals. I've noticed a lot of people after a long race or long run put on sandals, and I wonder if it was a fad or if there's really a recovery reason for doing that. And if there is a benefit to putting on sandals after a long race or long run, what should I be looking for in a pair of sandals? Thanks a lot. I have an answer for this. I know I try to do something after every race, but let's let's hear from you first. Well, it just feels really good to get out of those shoes. It let's does, be honest. Yeah. Um, sandals are a, a, a great thing. Sometimes you get to air out your feet and you just you, you feel comfortable. If after hard training, long races, long runs. Uh, I, I really like a sandal that has some contouring to the footbed so it can actually curve to the shapes of your foot, especially a little bit of an arch in there. Um, that's just going to feel a little bit better, give you a little bit of support for that aching foot. Um, your muscles in your legs and feet aren't really going to want to do a lot of that work at that point. And that's a good time to just give them the help they need. So um, one of my favorites a go-to is just a Birkenstock. Um, I know others have UFOs and uh, other brands yeah, that they that, really like. That was me. That's you, right? After every race. It feels good. It does. And they're soft. Or after a long run when you're beat up and you have to go to the grocery store and you don't want to be in running shoes anymore. Like yeah. just something nice and soft to be on as you're walking around. If you cross that line to beat up from beat up to injured um, <laughs> and you end up with something like plantar fasciitis, the last thing you want to be in is a sandal. You don't want to have to have those toes doing work and clawing and, and things of that nature, but you still want the support. But if you're just tired and you've been putting in the, the hard work and you're you're not injured – they feel real good. Cool. So back to a question from social media, a very simple one. We just kind of talked about it. It's from Dan Crotz on Twitter. Jeff, does drop matter? Yes and no. Um, drop was a huge buzzy thing during the minimalist running age a, a while ago, and um, it seems to have faded a little bit. But drop is just the difference in the stack heights between your heel and your forefoot. So how much higher your heel is off the ground. Traditional shoes were around 12 millimeters, which is about a half an inch. And then the minimal movement came along and everybody said, hey, you have to run in zero drop or, um, you know, whatever they were classifying as minimalist was maybe lower than four millimeters of total drop. If you're looking at just a difference of a couple millimeters, it's probably not a big deal and you can make that change pretty easy. But if you're going from something, a standard trainer with a 12 millimeter drop, maybe you're running in something like a Nike Pegasus with a 10 millimeter drop or so and you want to go down to a zero drop ultra, if you jump right into it and start doing all your miles, your calves are going to start screaming because you're basically extending that calf and Achilles and making them do a lot more work and uh, in a position they're not used to. So you have to make that transition really slowly. That's where it, it matters. Um, if you have something like I'm constantly fighting uh, tight calves and sore Achilles you know, on and off all the time. If it flares up, I go into something with a little bit higher drop just to relieve that pressure for a little while and, and then bounce back in different shoes. If you know the measurements, you can use them as a tool, you know, in your in your bag. Um, but it, it does matter in, in some instances, yes. You still say you people should really go by feel more than look at those stats necessarily, right? Yeah. Unless they are dealing with something. Because there is a lot of research showing, like you said, certain drops can lead to a specific type of injury. Yeah, I always still say miles over millimeters. Uh, it's a little saying I stole from my buddy Seth Hasty. Shout out there. Um, it's really just about putting in the training and not getting so hung up on little tiny numbers and looking at the specs of everything. And, and we can be guilty of that in any 
pursuit we want. Uh, in running, we look at those numbers. How much does the shoe weigh and how how much drop is there? When really does it feel good on your foot? How does it do? Does your stride feel natural? Is it comfortable? Um, those are really important factors. Your body's doing a lot of uh, calculations on the fly as you're running in that shoe, even in the running store, trying it on. And if it feels good, it, it chances are going to work for you. Now an email it came from Megan Anzelk. She asks, should I look for different shoe features for shoes I wear mainly on the road versus a pair just for the treadmill? What about long runs versus short runs and speed work? in the long run, does it matter how you're changing things up? You know, for the treadmill versus road, you can really get away with your road shoe on the treadmill very easily. Uh, We had a question earlier about um, lightweight and racing flats and things. You could actually wear a much lighter shoe on a treadmill because there is some cushioning built in and you are on a softer surface. You also don't have to worry about durability as much. Um, As a result, you're not grinding a shoe down on pavement as much as that moving belt. So you can you can get away with a lighter shoe, a thinner shoe, if you want, but you don't have to. The shoe that you're wearing for your everyday miles is going to work just fine on a treadmill. Okay, so that's road versus treadmill. Um, she also asked about long runs versus short runs and speed work. We kind of talked about that in an earlier question, but just to hit on it again, um, it's kind of what you're comfortable with, or you might want to transition to shoes like that, right? Yeah, for sure. And you know, those long runs, you're still going to want some protection. So you might want your heavier trainer, especially if you're going for a few hours on the treadmill. But if you're looking to do speed work, by all means, you know, slip on that lightweight pair of shoes and let it rip. This next question is from Twitter, and you got me on this about a month ago on a run. It's from Chris Von Cannon. Chris asks, I double knot so I can avoid having to stop and tie mid-run. Is there a better method? Untying doubles is tedious. I'm... I blame never doing Boy Scouts. I suck at knots, Jeff. Um, explain via podcast the best way to tie shoes, and, and maybe we'll, and I think we will, we'll put together a video and we'll put it on our episode page for this one on the best way to tie your shoes. Yeah, that's one of the most popular things we've done here at Runner's World, and it's always fun to walk around the office and point at people's shoes and say, you're tying a granny knot, because that's really what's happening is if your shoes are coming untied, you're tying a granny knot, and every time you step, you put force into that knot, and cause it to come loose. But I if you tie, I figured it out, though. We all learned how to tie our shoes wrong. 50% of us or so are tying our shoes wrong. Um, and the really the easy thing is you just have to change one thing in the way you're tying your knot, really. Um, the easiest way to identify if you're tying your knot right or wrong is when you do the single knot, look down at it. And if it lays nice and clean off to the sides, um, you're fine. But if it goes parallel with your foot and the knot is climbing up your ankle, you're tying a granny knot. Um, it's kind of hard to explain how to do it, but if you are a good Boy Scout, you remember left over right, left under right. Um, you I never swear do... I do that and it still comes on Yeah, it's yeah. a hard thing to do. Um, but it's basically just creating a nice standard knot. And we'll show that at Runner's World Audio. We'll get a video up um, and have the steps on how to do that. But And I will still get it wrong yeah. all the time. And you won't need to double knot ever if you do this. The knot's not going to come undone. Do you? So you do not double knot? I do not double knot ever. Um, I remember Josh Cox once at the Boston Marathon. He was double knotting his shoes, and I was giving him crap about it. And I was like, Josh, you're double knotting your shoes. I could teach you how to tie your shoes. And he looked up at me and said, on race day, you don't take any chances. Um, so that's the one thing I would say is like on race day, yeah, you double knot them, but make sure you're tying that base knot right first and then you don't have to worry about it. And Josh Cox, for those who do not know. Yeah, Josh was an elite runner for a bunch of years. He's now uh, in sports management of a bunch of elite athletes, but um, he was a 213 marathoner, just really, really great runner in his day. Um this next question actually came in from several people. Thank you all for this question. Um, Besides feeling dead, is there a physical test to see if a shoe is worn out? No, there's not. (laughs) Unfortunately, it would be great if there was. Um, I mean, you could bring them to our lab and we could test them and tell you. But no, that's that's not going to happen. Please send shoes to Jeff Jeff Dengue. Please please send me all your shoes. Uh, No, we give a really broad range on when you should replace your shoes. And we say 300 to 500 miles because there's so many variables in running. That's the shoes and the materials that they're using and how much shoe is under your foot and how much uh, you're dragging your feet and how large you are and how hard you stomp and there are just tons of factors. So typically we see those shoes wear out you know, 300 to 500 miles. You really are an experiment of one though and you have to just keep an eye on what's working for you. So if you're feeling beat up or flat, that is the 
the first indicator that like these shoes might be going. You can look at them if you're wearing through the rubber, if you're wearing through the foams, if the foam the rubber visibly, underneath the rubber underneath that makes contact with the road. Yeah, if the foam like you're looking at the sidewalls and it's looking collapsed and all compacted and compressed down, um, chances are it's probably shot and uh, it's not going to bounce back and give you the protection you need. So yeah, that, there's not a real easy test. Um, you know, one of the nice things that you can always do is if you're shopping for new shoes, you think yours are shot and you might be in the market for it, go to your local running shop and bring those shoes with you. And you ask the question, they'll be honest with you and they'll tell you, yes, they're shot or not. And, you know, or how you can work in a new pair of shoes and how much time you might have left in that old pair. Um, there's a pretty valuable resource there to be able to identify any issues. I'm pretty terrible at keeping track of the miles on my shoes. I, a lot of people just write it down in the log. You can keep track of the miles you use on shoes on Strava, for instance. I started doing that, and I never update what shoe I ran in. Um, but there are a lot of other ways to kind of keep track. There are some new tools out there that people could try. There are. Yeah, there's this um, little tool called Minnow, and um, it's $15 for a set of them. You slip it in your shoe, and you actually run on top of it. The challenge is they really just have a 400-mile benchmark. They've taken that 300 to 500, split it down the middle, and they tell you that your shoes are expired about then. So it's... It gives you an idea. It keeps track of, you know, in case you just have no clue how many miles are on your shoe. It gives you an idea, um, but it's not it's not exact. A much less high-tech version um, is I've seen people just write the date on the inner edge of the shoe when they first went running in that shoe. So they have an idea. Okay, I ran a thousand miles this year and I got this shoe eight months ago. That means I probably have 750 miles. You know, you can do a rough calculation and get a ballpark number. Um, So that's one way to do it. Okay, real quick. You said that's the minnow. It goes in your shoe. So how how does that work? It goes under the insole. How does that how does that feel when you're running? Yeah, exactly. It's just a little device. Um, it's almost like a like a half insole type thing that goes back underneath your heel, and you put it underneath the sock liner in your shoe, and you basically forget about it. It's maybe like a couple credit cards thick. Um, okay. You really won't feel it. it. It might change the the cushioning properties of your shoe a little bit because it is a little bit firmer than what you would be you know, landing directly on foam, but it's it's unobtrusive. You don't really feel it at all. And it's back far enough that it's not at any point where your foot flexes, so you won't feel it in that regard either. Just sits right behind your heel, and every time you land on it, it's basically just recording each footfall and calculates roughly how many it needs to hit that 400-mile mark. And you're an advocate of at least having, like, two pair of shoes probably to switch back and forth. That way that you get a little bit more life out of both pair in a way, right? Yeah, it maybe stretches out the the purchases. You don't have to buy them as often. It also allows you to have um, uh, different sensations. Um, Changing up those inputs to your body and uh, what you're doing eliminates all the repetitive stresses that you get. So by having something that's maybe a heavy shoe and alternating it with a lighter shoe for faster days, you're you're changing up what your body is sensing and feeling and maybe fighting off a little bit of injury from those repetitive motions that you would get by running in the same shoe at the same speed every single day. So yeah, I'm a big fan of breaking up the, the runs as well as get a pair of trail shoes, get off the roads, go on those variable surfaces and have some fun on trail shoes too. Um, and those will last you a while as well. Okay, now an email from Olivia Allen Price. Um, So she says, in your recent Runner's World magazine, you said stability shoes are on the out because thinking has changed on how much stability runners need. What is the latest? Jeff. Yes, stability has been sort of under attack for a while. Um, We've eliminated all of those categories, neutral, stability, motion control, from the Runner's World shoe guides. Uh, at least five years ago now. Um, And we've always sort of been looking at what are the factors for you as an individual that are going to be most important, your body size, your speed, basically your injury risks, and then giving you a level of protection that the shoe should offer you. And that comes in a lot of different forms, but it is a combination of cushioning and some stability features. And when we ask, what is a stability shoe? It, It Define what is a stability shoe? Where do we draw that line? Because even the most neutral Uh, training shoes have some stability features like uh, a rounded heel and uh, full ground contact outsole. These are things that can help stabilize the foot. So um, there are some true motion control shoes on the market left. uh, And there are some people that really do need those shoes that need that big, heavy shoe that's going to stop their foot from really moving. But it's fewer than we ever really thought. And a lot of people were being prescribed 
much more stability than they ever needed. So what is it now? Um, a lot of us are, you know, thinking it's buying a shoe based on comfort. Um, you know, what fits good, what feels good. Um, you know, if it doesn't fit and feel right, you're not going to wear it and you're not going to run. Um, and that's not just today, but over the long life of that shoe too. If it doesn't continue to feel good, you need to make the change and, and you sort of can find out, do I need more arch support? Do I want something that's a little firmer in the heel? Um, or do I want something that's softer and more what we would typically think of as neutral? Um, but those are things we're going to you know, have to assess individually now rather than just broadly saying, oh, well, you have a flat arch, so you need a shoe with posting and a, you know, a stability shoe. So yeah, if you're looking for a new shoe, you want to try something different, but you want to make sure you're in the right ballpark, go to a running store. They'll get you fitted up right. And if you just want to get an idea online, you can go to runnersworld.com slash shoe finder. We have our brand new shoe finder tool there. It's going to take you through the whole process that we kind of have in print in the magazine to help you find the best shoe from not just the past year, but the past several years. So you'll you'll have a lot of options and ideas on where you can go. So that's runnersworld.com slash shoe finder. Okay, final one for this round of questions, Jeff. It comes from Caitlin, and she sent in a voice memo. Hi, my name is Caitlin, and I live in Connecticut, although I'm currently calling from Valencia, Spain. My question is, or I guess questions are, for those of us with very small feet, um, I've been running for about six years now, and something I've noticed in both my regular dress, sho- dress shoes, where I wear a size two or three, and with my running shoes, where I wear a size four, is that children's shoes are just not built to last as long as adult shoes. Um, so I guess my first question is, does the 300 or 500 mile rule, or whatever we're using now, still hold for children's shoes, or should I be retiring them sooner? Um, Also, and now that Brooks has discontinued their children's running shoe line, which is what I've been wearing for the past couple years, um, are there other brands or models which stand out as more high quality or longer lasting than the others? Um, Finally, what would you suggest for more specific shoe types like trail running shoes or racing flats? Thank you, and I love the show. Yeah, we don't get into the realm of kids' shoes much. What do you know there? Yeah, we recently looked at um, some kids' shoes. Uh, Ultra is making a per- version of their The One, and okay. they're making The One Junior. And they are kids' models, and they are every bit as legit as the adult shoes. Um, we, we got some for some of the staff's kids, and I know my own daughter actually did run a little kid's kilometer in them and has beat the snot out of those shoes, and they really held up um, very, very well. And we're putting them through our shoe lab the same way? We didn't, know. Um, we, we didn't. We only do the adult shoes through the shoe lab, so it was um, more just a look, because there are very few options as far as real performance kids' shoes. And one of the, the truths about kids' shoes is that kids just beat them up really fast because they're doing so much of life in the shoes. They're playing on the jungle gym. They're running around. They're doing everything except at what we would call running, where we would reserve a pair of shoes for our own adult kids' play. Um, so kids' shoes are typically going to have the, the uppers blown out and the rubber run off just from doing their little skateboard and whatever else they do in kids' shoes. Uh, so if you are a small foot and you need a kid's shoe, you can look at Ultras, the one junior, which is a solid shoe. You can also look at um, Saucony does make some small shoes still, and they have a, a pretty good history of building good kid shoes through Stride Right um, as well. So the options aren't there aren't that many out there, but um, you know, hopefully they'll somebody else will start building some more. All right. Well, hopefully Caitlin's question will uh, lead people to see that there is a need out there. That's right. Listen up, manufacturers. <laughs> we have people that need kid shoes. If you have a shoe-related question, send it our way. We'll be featuring this segment periodically, so there's a good chance we'll get to your question in the future. You can email us at rwaudio at rodale.com, tweet us at rwaudio, or message us on Facebook at Runner's World Audio. And also, you should consider following Jeff on Twitter and Instagram right now. It's a really good follow. He's set an unusual challenge for himself this year, and that's to run in a different pair of shoes every single day for 365 days. As of this recording, he's running 164 different pairs of shoes. That's really incredible. We didn't think he'd get this far, and he's almost halfway through the year. 
He's documenting it all at DenGatorade on Twitter and Instagram. And if you need the spelling of that, it's D-E-N-G-A-T-E-R-A-D-E. Coming up next in The Kick, the mystery behind the man with the mullet. And now it's time for The Kick with digital editor Chris Michael and food and nutrition editor Heather Mayer Irvin. So one story that's done really well on our site is a college runner who ran the NCAA track and field championships last weekend with a really magnificent mullet. Uh, Craig Engels of the University of Mississippi is a 1,500-meter runner, uh, but it was his hair that stole the show. So, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, First, I got to say, I'm really loving this uh, elite athletes with amazing hairstyles trend. I really want to see it continue. Uh, and I think that Craig Engels is just doing a very good job of sort of one-upping the uh, the amazing hairstyle started by Noah Drotti. So so he showed up at the NCAA Track and Field Championships with uh, what one Twitter user called um, <laughs> basically looks like the third member of Hall & Oates, right? He, he <laughs> looks like he's really, about to drop yes. the hottest contemporary bluegrass album of 1987. He, he has the most beautifully feathered, highlighted... Uh, you know, all business on top with this long, luxurious, flowing party in the back mullet. Um, it, you know, just a little shaved on the sides, as as uh, country singers are known to do. And then he has the most perfect mustache. And I think one of my favorite moments from the NCAA track and field championships is when he looked directly into the camera and then used both of his index fingers to to just smooth out the mustache there. He a did bit. crack a smile though. He's got to work on his deadpan game. But it's just it was so it was just mwah. maybe less importantly, uh how did he do? Yes. So he made the finals. He finished third with Josh Kerr of the University of New Mexico who ran a 34303. Uh and then Justin Kiprochich uh edged out angles by just a hair. He won. Uh, he came in second with a three forty three point five, and uh, Engels' mustache hair just didn't quite get him there. Uh, he had a three forty three point five four. And he even noted that maybe if he had cut it, he could have he could have beaten Kerr. But uh, I don't know if it would have been as interesting of a race. I mean that that four hundredths of a second. I really I think if he had just grown his mustache a little longer could and leaned just a little hair. forward. Yeah, I think I think he should. I think he should have gone a little. We'll more in it. Um, so his goal is to make the the U.S. team for the Worlds this summer. Um, last summer he finished fourth in the 800 at the Olympic trials, so he just barely missed out on a trip to Rio. Um, so I'm really hoping that he he makes it this year. Yeah, and we've got a I think a slideshow in the works, maybe one of these days with the best hair. Absolutely. So another story that did really well this week. Um, you know, we've all seen wedding proposals happen at races. They're sweet, but not super original. Um, but Amanda Hughes and Joel Say, uh, they took things to the next level. You know a little bit about this, Heather. What happened? So the couple ran the Brooklyn Half Marathon last month with 60 of their wedding guests before the festivities. Um, the, the pair met in 2009. They were training for the New York City Marathon with team and training. And they got engaged last year. They'd been running. And uh, you know they set the date. And mm-hmm. it coincided with the Brooklyn Half. And they asked 60 of their friends and family to join them in the race. That is amazing. And they got – that's one way to whittle down your wedding party, I suppose. (laughs) Right. Um, So explain this. How uh, – wait, first of all, uh, because the details, I think, sort of matter for something like this. How did they get people to to actually show up for the race? It's pretty clever, actually. They sent out their wedding invitations in the form of a training schedule since – Many of the guests were new to running, which new to distance running anyway, which is pretty impressive for the guests, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, really good sports. Um, Amanda, of course, wore a white singlet and a white running skirt. Joel Classic. had a black singlet, black shorts. And, you know, they were good sports. They wanted to make this about their friends and family. So they, they kept about a 10-minute pace. They all finished around 2.13 and then, you know, went to go shower and get ready to get married. <laughs> now, I got sweaty before my wedding, but... For very different reasons, yes. I was mostly just nervous. And so they seem like actually kind of a fun couple. 
Yeah, the, ultimately, you know, they got engaged. They started talking about how much time they spent in each other's apartments. And Joel says, plus, Amanda's cats needed more attention. So we decided to move in together. Uh, so we wish you a long, healthy, happy marriage with lots of miles ahead. Excellent. Um, so speaking of animals, uh, the third big story that uh, made the news, a viral video went out or viral photo went out of a particular animal disrupting a race, which has happened several times in the past. What was it this time? It was a bear in Colorado. Yeah. Okay. So when a bear crosses your path, I think even if you're trying to PR, you stop. So where where specifically was this, Chris? So this was at the Garden of God's 10-mile run in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And um, it was about the halfway point, and a bear just meandered right across the road in front of the runners. Uh, it hesitated before uh, a large enough gap in the crowd opened up, and then it sort of bolted through, which is how I cross. Uh, <laughs> and uh, although there, people got a little nervous, uh, nobody was harmed during the race. So that I wonder was if good. anyone carried honey packets. Yeah, I, I would draw, I would just throw them just immediately. Them. So what kind of animal would you most uh, hate to see if you were running a race? So I'm sure there are a lot. And I don't have the same phobia as my brother does of snakes. But I think if I saw a snake in the middle of the road, it bets, all, all racing bets are off. Yeah, but, I, th- I think that's fair. Yeah, snake. Yeah. Yeah, I think I for me it would be like a tarantula. And they're not big, but um, I just have a thing about spiders. A little skittish. Yeah, you don't want to step on that one yeah, either. See, that's why I don't run in the Southwest. The only reason. The only, <laughs> the only reason. The only reason. All right, Heather, we covered a lot today: mullets, weddings, crazy animals. The I think bears. The bears. I think that's enough. All right. Thanks, Chris. All right. Take care. And that is it for this week's show. Thanks again to all of you who have rated and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts and sent us an email. We can't thank you enough for that. And check your feed tomorrow. We'll have a special best of episode just in time for your weekend long run. I'm your host, Brian Dalek, and this week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and me. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.